違う Rick had had conversations with Paul about things that Rick had heard in some of the Beatles tracks that reminded him of uh, more contemporary music uh, that Rick had produced or knew of. Uh, and they really just geeked out on the musicology of the Beatles discography. He pulled up to set in his 90s Bronco by himself with a few guitars in the back. You know, hopped out, walked right on the set, you know, said hey to everyone, had no kind of assistance managers with him. Immediately started talking with Rick. We basically just started filming from the minute he arrived to the minute he left. If he's having fun, if he gets to go and play the guitar that he wants to, great. If he gets to go play if he gets to tell the story if he gets to listen i mean you can see he's having so much fun re-listening to what are songs that he's i'm sure heard millions of times but it's almost as if he's hearing it for the first time or as a fan of his own music singing along This week's one there was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. I'm John Stone. Well, let's see. This week we finally got to see McCartney 321. It is one of a number of strong music docs which have really been coming out this year. Yes. And new stuff. It was quite enjoyable, I thought. We had mentioned in a previous show, uh, 1971, the, the documentary on the year 1971 that, that was on Apple Music and how Paul got ignored. So it's good that he actually gets a little bit of play here. <laughs> right. One of the things I really enjoyed about it is that normally he's kind of in an interview setting and this is much more relaxed and just telling stories. Well, his choice of clothing, the beat-up old denim jacket, and, you know, of course, he can't come dressed fancy at all with Rick Rubin across from him. <laughs> right. Like a shaman guiding souls along a spiritual journey, Rick Rubin has helped some of history's greatest musicians reach musical nirvana. Rick ain't normal. I don't give a fuck. I know all producers have their idiosyncrasies, meaning, you know, quirks and weird ish. But he's just strange by strange standards. Yeah, it was just a good feeling about the whole thing. <laughs> it was strange. I, I recently saw an interview with someone else 
And the questions that were being asked were, were a little bit deeper because the interviewer knew of the subject. And, of course, Rick Rubin knows music. So, you know, he tended to point out musical things, whereas a lot of times interviewers are not that. And that's why this really solidly fits in as a musical doc more than just a celebrity piece. Exactly. It's not about his life necessarily, although he can't really speak to the music without speaking about his life. But it really is focused on the music in a studio with a, a desk to play the stuff back and solo channels. And so it's really focused on the music. Now, what about them actually sort of building this set? This is not inside of Paul Studios. They actually built this environment for them to film in on Paul's property. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, there, there's a track built around the set. And so sometimes you could see another camera in the dark background, but they didn't try to hide that. It's not sort of a slit production. Yeah, the director is the same fellow who was behind the Beyonce six-part doc, so that, that's kind of an interesting bit of contrast there. The struggle is sort of to define what his legacy is and to be a present artist today. Well, I can't speak to that. I didn't see, see the Beyonce. <laughs> uh, yeah, Zach- Zachary Heinzerling, uh, you can figure it out from Beyonce's reputation and what you've seen at Beyonce is very much in line with her brand. Right. You know, despite being as casual as it is, this is very much in line with McCartney's brand. Yes, and it's a black and white, which keeps it from looking studio-ish like Let It Be. Yeah, the weird thing about that is when they cut to clips, sometimes those clips and certainly a lot of those photographs were colorized. Yes. You know, I guess that was really just to keep up the contrast. That could be. You know, it's funny how much of their early career is in black and white. It's kind of like Wizard of Oz. There becomes this color period once you get to help that's when everything changes right uh you know even the first sullivan show had had they actually waited a week they could have done it live in color on sullivan in 65 that may be why they colorized some of the photographs i I don't know they surely have heard at least some of the complaints that came against ron howard for his colorization in eight days a week right well you know i know that Modern audiences tend to immediately think old when they see black and white. The colorization helps bring it into the the present day. Yeah, it has a good look. And then the other thing I noticed is uh, in the trailer they showed excerpts of Paul playing drums. I guess all of that got cut out. It feels almost like the bass is doing what an orchestra would do. You can actually control the band with the bass. Two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Supposedly there's 15 hours worth of material. They filmed over like three days. Something had to get cut out then. As with everything, it's, it's just, oh, well, gee, that made the trailer and it's not here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it could be we have to get the trailer out. The cut isn't finished yet. This actually stands as a really interesting COVID document. You know, it was both sort of before he was getting ready to go and do all the promotion on McCartney 3, but he'd finished the record, and so he's like, okay, I need something else to do. What can we do in this amount of time? Right. Yeah. It is a MBL production. 
Oh, oh, most definitely. Yeah, you, you, you see the Impel logo come up after the last episode is streamed. It's, it's just fascinating to see it come together. I'm not sure wh how or why they decided where the episode splits would be. You know, the last one's a little bit shorter than the other five. Right. And there, there seems to be very little cohesion within an episode. You know, it could have just as very easily been uh, two parts of an hour and a half each, or it could have been three hour-long parts. And each episode has a title, usually taken from something that's said within that period of time. But there's not, as you said, there's not a lot of cohesion or a, a storyline that appears to be being followed. And it's certainly not chronological. No. They're kind of all over the place. So, I mean, you know, I don't know if, if as they were going through it, they actually went through it chronologically. I would imagine they, there had to be some order they were doing because they had to shift things in and out of that desk. Yes. You know, I had room for so much tape, unless, of course, it's all just digital, which it might be. They may have just digitized all the tracks. and Yeah, that's probably what they did rather than using you know, masters. It's all on a digital desk. At one point, it just seems like uh, it was indicated that Ruben was choosing what to play and perhaps surprising McCartney. You know, at one point, Paul goes, well, what do you have now? What you got now? I got this one. You know, you could see that each set of four faders had an individual strip of paper over it. It probably had the song title written on that. Right, and, and where everything was. You know, yeah, here, so here are, your, here are your vocals and here's your bass. And so he knew what faders to bring up. So, you know, he was limited to whatever was loaded onto that desk at that time. It looked like a vintage desk. Do you have any idea what sort of desk that was? I don't. That may be worth looking into if we can. They kind of indicated that it was it was an older desk. In which case, gee, is this actually digital or, or what? Well, you know, the desk could be hooked up to whatever playback you needed, whether it was digital or analog. That's true as well, yeah. So, all right. Let's go ahead and start what you got. Episode one. Each episode opens with just a little snippet of music. The first episode starts with John and Paul's harmonies from here, there, and everywhere. Then just on a black background, you get the McCartney 3-2-1. And it actually starts by them walking into the room and walking up to the board, which is one of the few ways you know that this is the first episode. Ah. They, they do that here, but they don't show them walking away from the room at the end. <laughs> That's too bad somebody couldn't walk in with a drum head with McCartney on it. <laughs> that, that would have been fun, yeah. <laughs> They go almost immediately into uh, the tracks from All My Loving. Right. And he talks quite a bit about it. Very enthusiastic about John's guitar part, which, of course, is the thing that you immediately key into on that song. Yeah, the triplets. Right. And, he, and he's standing there miming them. And he's just having so much fun. 
You try doing that for three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a joy to, to almost all of his listening. Uh, he, he has a enthusiasm to hear these things again. Then we go into the first clip, which is uh, the actual Miami performance uh, of All My Loving, which I don't know why they chose that one rather than the the very first one. A lot of Beatles fans would know it, but the public, that would be kind of a something they had seen in a long time. And it's a great performance, you know, John and George talking away in the background. Then Paul talks about George, the way he changes his guitar playing in there, and Rick Rubin goes off and says, you know, that, that was a real unusual musical choice. Right, because the lead is basically a country style. It's like a Chet Atkins guitar part, and so in the midst of this other thing, which is one of the things that Rubin points out, is that they just grab elements of different things and put them together we've heard a lot of these isolated tracks but i still have never heard them quite in the way they present them here they've done some mixing just the combination of parts which is something that i've never done you know when just sort of fading one up and fading the other down or even you know putting the two together it's like it didn't sound like that right and you know i want to hold your hand was the first four track session they did and I think that All My Loving was still on the two-track. I think you are correct. So, you know, how they isolated all that, interesting to find out. That's one of the other things that I got out of this. When you listen to the real isolated parts and you listen to the digitally isolated parts, they are close, but they are not the same. Our technology is still not good enough to be able to actually pull out completely, you know, particularly in some of the overtones of the sound. You know, some of the things like all the different ways that Paul can make the bass sound. That was kind of eye-opening. And it, it's always been there right in front of you, but I guess it takes a certain amount of, this is that sound by itself. You know, uh, he used a variety of tones over his career, some of which surprised him. <laughs> then, then the poll quote for the series. We were writing songs that were memorable because we had to we remember had them. To remember them. Then that goes into Paul talking about his time at home and the family parties. Stories we've heard before, but uh, he seems to be investing a little bit more of himself, particularly when he talks about how Jim got arthritis and you know he demonstrates his hand exercises, so he's going to be able to keep playing. Right. The fact that his father had to stop playing. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, uh, because he couldn't play anymore. And that, that was one of the, the questions that I thought was real good that Rick asked was, you know, how it felt when you took over. You know, uh, he became the, the family pianist and uh, from his father. And, you know, it's a big family party. You're in the comfort of your family, but it was still had to have been really nerve-wracking to take over. A big deal. Yeah. As he said, he didn't even know all the songs. <laughs> I'm sure uh, Jim knew a, a whole bunch of those songs, and Paul knew some. The whole Tin Pan Alley songwriting, you know, with right. Chicago being the example that he always goes to. Right. You know, he talks a little bit about his relationship to John personality-wise, you know, that, that he grew up kind of believing that all families were pretty 
loving and inclusive. And, and so that's how he grew up. That's how he saw the world. And he was very surprised to find out that there are families that are not like that. That actually was part of the uh, back and forth between John and Paul many, many years later. You know, John's criticism of Paul was way too conservative. Which then uh, leads into the, the getting better story. I mean, you know, yeah, that, right. that is an old chest on it. It isn't all that much changed here. Right. It was a, a nice uh, part that he told that story, but the kind of example they gave was we can work it out. Yeah. And they, and they played the clip from music of Lennon McCartney where John just keeps cracking up. Yeah. It's been seen around, but that would have to be considered a pretty fairly rare clip. And it's not colorized. That that one is in black and white. Right. Now, this was new, that when they got into arguments that, that Paul would uh, call John <laughs> four eyes, and then John would shout back a pigeon chest. I, right. I wouldn't have come up with that as a nickname for Paul, even at the time. Now, he was a pretty skinny guy. Right. Well, you know, those boyhood arguments, whatever, you kind of... Go for your best insult at the time. Did you just crack me up? I would call him Four Eyes. No, Four Eyes. And he would go, Pigeon Chest. <laughs> My chest is not as developed as his or whatever. So, you know, we did all that. But these things obviously bring you together. Yeah. Then, then they talk about, he talks about learning chords on the guitar. Jim Gretti, I. Did we know that name before? I, I, you know, I knew that he was someone who worked at Hesse's, and that's different from their other story about you know getting on a bus and transferring four times to find the guy who knew the chord. That's a different story, right? That and that and that was really early on because that was, they were learning a B seventh from this guy. You know, the the chord that Paul learned um, at Hesse's. So Jim Gretti right. is is the fellow's name. The name didn't strike uh, any chords with me. No pun intended. No. <laughs> you know, I may have read it somewhere, but it's certainly not not a well known. Yeah, I, I don't know that we knew it. Tell you the truth, it's possible. So this guy was a, was a jazz player, and he would show off an quote F something chord. <laughs> F demented. Yeah, that, that's, that is how they would refer to it later. And I've uh, wondered whether Paul is quoting George because George goes and talks about how Dylan wanted to, to see the F minute chord. <laughs> right. In 1970. So it's like, was that just a Beatle thing? Or was that some people say that that's just a, a musician thing? It's funny that this has part, been part of his songs since 19. 19- whoever who knows when he wrote that song, but that he still hasn't learned the name of that chord because certainly George Martin could have told him. Oh, I, I think he actually knows <laughs> it's an F diminished, but I think he just prefers the F diminished. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. He tells an expanded version of the Michelle story. Yes. I've never heard of the, the Millard story. Neither had I, uh, but even the comparing it to, to Juliet Greco and, you know, and Bridget Bardot, which is funny. It's like, <laughs> well, what does she have to do with it? Oh, well, she was cute and she was blonde and John loved her. So, Right. The foreignness, perhaps. The little things that trigger how a song comes out. You know, the Milord became Michelle. You know, that, that was just a little influence. Okay, so Michelle. Then... 
that he goes to. Uh, now, Edith Piaf, you know, we all know who Edith Piaf is, but I, I wasn't familiar with this particular song. Is that something you'd heard from her before? No. Okay. But, but probably something that was on the BBC. <laughs> well, obviously, they came up with a clip for it. Yes. So it, it was just a, a little trigger. I'd never heard that it was John that encouraged him to finish it. And somebody sort of said, do you know that joke French thing you do? It was John. He said that just sort of in an offhand manner, but it's uh, he's a bit more decisive about that fact here. Right. And then we know that John is the one who added the, uh, I love you, I love you, yep. I love you. Although they don't actually talk about the middle eight all that much here. No, that's not part of it. It's just what we know. John talks about that in the Playboy interview, I believe. But uh, yeah. it's, also, it's nice that, that Ivan Vaughn and Ivan's wife get a name check here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's where he actually got the French from. <laughs> Where's the check, McCartney? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> and then I had a very good friend, actually the guy who introduced me to John, mm. Ivan. He was married by this time, and his wife, Jan, was a French teacher. I said, "Oh, Jan, this you got to help me. What's a what's a rhyme for Michelle?" She said, "Marbel." I said, "What's that mean?" She said, "My my beautiful." I said, "Great, Michelle, Marbel," and then. How do you say these are words that go together well in French? Sans les mots qui vont très bien ensemble. Okay, you better write that one out. Ivan's no longer with us. Yeah, we're all getting on. They go to the board. They actually play some of the tracks of Michelle. And this is the first time, as you were mentioning earlier, that Rick Rubin really just sort of marvels at Paul's bass playing. Right. You know, just just how hard the bass is working in the track. You know, so many things that he says over the course of this apply to other things. But, you know, Michelle is one of those things where the guitar is kind of holding down the straight. You know, and it's the bass that's really kind of moving around. Providing the melody. Right. You know, I think that comes up several times in in these episodes. That as McCart says, you got to have that straight. You know, it's got to be there, and then you can play around. This is also the first time that we actually see them go to the side and see Paul just sort of playing the guitar. Rick Rubin sitting Indian style on the floor at his feet. That, that's just a funny image. Okay. <laughs> right. It is. It's the Jedi Master type thing. <laughs> right. One other thing I thought was that uh, it finally confirmed, I hadn't heard this before this show that the song slows down and he he mentions that in this song he was modeling the off track yeah that, that it that it's you know really slowed down and that they couldn't do it that dramatically but they did slow down as that as a nod to it and i've always felt like they slow down right there that's really weird because usually their timing is right on so i never had heard it an explanation. Yeah, so to find out that it's intentional, the tempo just sort of slows just, down right. ever so slightly. Right. I'd never heard of an explanation for that. And there it is. Then Rick Rubin asks him about some other influences, and uh, he goes off into the Beach Boys. About the harmonies, right? Yep, about the harmonies. He still doesn't get the order right 
It was Rubber Soul, Pet Sounds, Revolver, Good Vibrations, then Pepper. Right. And because I've never been part of this show before, I always like to point out that it wasn't the British version of Rubber Soul that Brian Wilson flipped out about. It was the more folky. American. Yeah. Where it opened up with I've Just Seen a Face and you know took off some of the electric songs and had more acoustic songs. And so it came off much more folky at a time when that was coming up in American pop music as well. And so he saw that as like this complete album. But if you would have heard the British, your first song would have been Drive My Car. Which is a completely different thing. Whole different feel. So that's used as an introduction into Sergeant Pepper. Well, they don't, other than uh, the familiar Salt and Pepper story, he didn't talk that much about the opening track of Pepper. So we had a laugh about that, but then I, the more I thought about Sergeant Pepper, that's kind of a cool character. No, other, other than, you know, he talks about uh, Hendrix. Yeah. Playing, you know. Sergeant and Hendrix Pepper, gets but... name checked a lot through this whole three hours. There's at yeah. least you know three or four occasions where, where Hendrix is is brought up. Well, clearly a, a huge influence. Yeah, absolutely. Although you know you have to think that Paul kind of influenced Hendrix in a way too. You know, Taxman was before Hendrix, and that's a, that's a very Hendrix style guitar solo he's playing there. Yeah, I I can see that. What they spend the most time on is uh, is Little Help. Right. I remember as a kid, I always listened to Paul, and he was. Right. But when I heard a little help from my friends, that completely changed my thought about the bass guitar. They make that point. The This is really a different sort of bass sound. Right. Well, it, again, he talks about that straight. That's the background. And I think Ruben comments, you know, that beat is just that will get you going. That's but then. McCartney's bass line comes in, and it's like a lead bass. I mean, he's all over the place. It, yeah, Paul. Paul describes it as as him uh, as him and the bass busily working away like little Snow White elves. I love that. <laughs> right. But we're busily working away in Abbey Road, ting ting, like little Snow Snow White's elves, ting ting ting. Uh, yeah, it's just a great line. So uh, great performance. And and then yeah, then he says, "Well, that was one of the real fun things, figuring out how you're going to get from there, there to there." And he's got his hands in two different places. Right. Well, you had the end of Sergeant Pepper, and then it goes dun 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 dun. And they vamped on that for a while, and that's how it ended. Um, and they had to, they knew the 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 key of little help my friends, so they had to figure out. How do you get from the chord at the end of Sgt. Pepper to introducing this other song in a different key? And so that's when they came up with the whole Billy Sheep. Then Paul tells this story about when they would hang out with Phil Spector and, and how they had to do something for both sides of a single. Yeah, Spector, you know, being in the record business. Take take the vocal off and, and call the B side sing along with. Yeah, don't don't have two good songs on a single. Have a great song and then you know that other song could be another single and, and just put crap on the back. You you get paid for it the same. There's no difference. So, you know, you would 
two good songs on a single, you're still getting paid the one price. When that misses one of the things that makes the Beatles great was they just had a, a sense of what it was like to be a fan and value for money. Then uh, Paul talks about George, and some of this is new. I mean, you know, we've, we've certainly heard the stories about them going hitchhiking, but the bit about what we do is we go to a little shop and we would buy a tin of rice pudding. It's called ambrosia. And I very resourcefully had brought along with me a little camping stove. Wow. So we're at the side of the road, trying to hitchhike. We've got this little open can. We weren't Beatles, we weren't anything, yeah, but if you look back, it's yeah. quite amazing to see like, There's two of the Beatles like, eating yeah, rice cream. On the side of the really road. On the side of the road, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, he also mentioned that uh, this early, early song called Thinking of Linking. They play bits of it in, in, in the Get Back sessions. And it's in the anthology because he said, you know, they had basically all completely forgot it, but it was George in the anthology that brought it back up. Yeah, apparently there was a company who would advertise in before the movies that called Link Furniture in Liverpool, and that's that was where they got the the phrase from. That would be a good buddy Holly song. The first episode ends with uh, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps," and that is a really sort of cool isolation we get here. Yes, um, hearing that bass by itself. I mean, I, the only way. I can think of describing it is it chugs i mean it just has this impactful tone it's a beat and one thing that i heard that i had never really noticed is that in the bridge i don't know why and it's playing a line it's playing a line that the guitar plays and that it also plays into the fact that you know they're sitting there talking and saying well this almost like there's two different songs going on here right it's that line which sort of holds it together yeah and i, and I thought well that's that's something that they did uh in several songs you know the they doubled on uh the guitar and bass on drive my car and don't let me down in the bridge and yeah, it, it, it just reinforces a line. And we also get Eric Clapton introduced. It's I thought it was a little bit funny. He's like, well, so what was Eric to you? Oh, Eric was George's friend. George's friend. Yeah, that's all. Well, at least he didn't say little friend. <laughs> then we get a little bit of obladi over the closing credits. Yeah, they play that mainly because uh, Ruben makes the statement that, you know, the way they incorporated different things it says you could play the Beatles could play a reggae influenced piece, but it wouldn't sound like reggae. And so, you know, the song they end up with is over the overlap. You guys were essentially blending styles, but not by mixing two genres, mm. but really by mixing two feels. Yeah. Like when the Beatles played a reggae-influenced number, it doesn't sound like reggae. It sounds like the right. Beatles. Yeah, yeah. So it, it becomes something new. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a nice fact of music, is even though you're inspired by something, it's going to sound like you. So before we move on, so episode one, 
to my mind, is actually probably the weakest of the of the six. Not that it's weak, but it, you know, you you still got to kind of introduce how are we going to do this, and they spend a little bit of time figuring things out. Right. Uh, and then the other thing is they still hadn't figured out exactly how they were going to do talking over playing stuff on the board. They figured it out a little bit later, but here in the first episode, they got to spend some of their time shouting over the music, and and that is a little bit hard to take. <laughs> right. And it's a tease, really, because you want to hear what they say, but at the same time, it's like, I'm listening. Hush. <laughs> yeah, they just need to put out a soundtrack, that's all. <laughs> Okay, so we go to, to episode so we, we're two. We're going up to episode two. And, and, and I noticed something when I watched it the second time. You know, we had just gone. It opens with just the string part to something. And mm-hmm. uh, very quiet, very pretty. But I had just watched episode one and had Michelle in my head. Didn't know what they were playing. Michelle was in my head. And it fits, you know, because it's a da, 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 da. So you can sing Michelle to those strings until it just goes to a chord that doesn't work anymore. But that's a complete worthless piece of trivia. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's interesting. And it also uh, tells you something about, well, the Beatles. Right. Uh, okay, so episode two starts with actually what is one of my favorite pieces of this whole set is uh, Paul talking about learning chords on the piano. Right, and how simple it is. You take these three fingers, you play these three notes, then you move them up two, then you move them up another two, and then you go back to the other way, and you got chords. I tell kids who want to learn the piano, I say, okay, here's you go. Start with middle C. We all know that as the first thing in a piano lesson. And then think about, like, the Eddie Cochran thing. You say, well, that's, that's a chord, if you play those together. And you just got that, remember this and that. So you do that, one space, finger, one space, finger. So there you got the chord. I say, you know, we started there. Mm-hmm. And so you could kind of write a song with that. Yeah, yeah. But if you just move this up one, it's the same shape. Yeah. You've got another chord. Yeah. So now you've got two chords. You move three. it up again, you've got three chords. Yeah. And move it up again, you've got four chords. Yeah, yeah. And then again, you've got five. And then now you've got six. Well, you don't need more than that. Yeah. So you can now put permutations yeah. of that. Well, yes, he also has a, a story from years ago about teaching keyboards to Linda and he basically told her the same thing you this is C start here and that's what he does in this thing you know here start here's C and you kind of go up and you could use the same finger patterns right on up yeah exactly but it's it's a great story and to see him just demonstrate that Paul McCartney teaches you how to play piano (laughs) and then he also ties that into to Eddie Cochran and, and Jerry Lee Lewis, I never quite knew that it was really just, again, those same three notes. Right. right. That's all Jerry Lee Lewis is doing, at least in that first part there. It's like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, um, he also, in this little segment, talks about a, a woman who is very popular in Britain called Mrs. Mills. She was a piano player. 
and you know played this big studio piano in Abbey Road. But um, he's talking about her, and he he mentions that she plays what's called stride music. And he says, I can't do that. And I thought that was interesting. I thought, he can do anything. Well, he's very self-deprecating about his own, other than his bass playing, you know, several times he says, oh, well, you know, I can play guitar, but I'm not that great a guitar player. I can play piano, but I can't do this and I can't do that. And it's like, you're Paul McCartney. Right, you seem to have gotten quite, gone quite well. And then the, that also gives you a real insight into John Lennon's piano playing. You know, John's piano, we've always thought it was just kind of a, a really basic thing, but he could do a lot with it. He's doing that's exactly what John, how John played the piano. Right. You know, those, the, the chords made up of those three notes. It's like, oh, right. You know, particularly he then he demonstrates one song, then he goes into a, imagine a little bit, and it's like, yeah, that's exactly what John's doing there. Yeah, and then he does Let It Be. Let It know? Be, yeah. Um, Which, again, I wouldn't have necessarily noticed. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Uh, here's the little tricks. Yeah, there's some uh, some footage from the Let It Be sessions that looks really nice. Yeah, I think that may be Peter Jackson's. Yeah, I, I think so. It looks It looks cleaned up and... And it's full yeah. frame. You know, we've, we've always had issues with the frame on that footage. This is the full 133 to 1 image, so. Right. And this is the uh, Harrison Lee guitar part that he came back and overdone. So we move on from Let It Be. Uh... Our favorite composer was Bach mm. in the Beatles because it was nearest to what we were doing. Mm. We always used to say, just put a beat behind it. It's an interesting insight into the way Paul thinks. Well, you know, there's a story also about uh, George Martin trying to introduce classical music to John, and John really wasn't really into it. And he said, he, you know, he, he played him some more, and then John kind of said, oh, it's just, it's a bunch of little songs strung together. So that's kind of how they thought of, about music, with a beat behind it. It's just little songs. Yeah, and then uh, Paul also goes in and talks a little bit about how the board at Abbey Road used to have a classical switch and a, and a pop switch. And it's like, <laughs> well, why do they get all the good EQs? <laughs> yeah, that's, that is kind of funny. You know, boys, they got something we don't have. Why is that? So uh, they're talking about Eleanor Rigby. You can see Paul miming the string playing, although he's not doing it all that seriously. Well, you know, he talks about it being a simple song and then George Martin, I mean, they discussed the strings and Martin came in going, well, down here you'd have the, the cellos and then you have a viola and up here and you know how you would separate it out into a score. Rather than a piano playing a chord, you have all these other things. And he talks about time, you know, two, four, eight, how you play them against each other. That makes the music move. And again, we, we get the self-deprecating thing. I didn't think I was singing it well. You know, it's like, yeah, that vocal, you know, that's one of your best vocals ever. <laughs> and, right. You know, John, John's the one who's not supposed to like his vocals. Right. And that's why we double tracked it. It's like, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it is unlike any song really Paul had done. I, we, we talked a little bit about it back in the, in the drug show. Right. 
think about that full throated. Ah, look at all the love. And I can't do it full throated. <laughs> it's just a different kind of vocal for him. So he clearly thought he wasn't singing it very well. He at least was reasonably happy with it once they got through it and uh, he double tracked it. So, right. Of course, that that does fix a lot of sins. <laughs> right, and it does. Yeah, he, he talks about hearing the octet live in the studio. You know, he went down to the studio and heard it, and then went back up to the control room. Then you go up and see what the engineers are making of it. Yeah. You know, they'd put it all together, yeah. put the right little bits of fairy dust on it, yeah. and they they now made it like a record. So that then leads into Penny Lane. Again, a, another fairly old story, you know, Paul listening to the Brandenburg Concerto. But it's good that we actually get some video of whether it was the actual broadcast Paul was watching or not, I don't know. But certainly a broadcast with David Mason playing. Right. And that footage looked very clean. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It may be, you know, a later performance from the 70s sometime. Or maybe they flipped the switch to... Uh... Classical. <laughs> the classical, there we go. <laughs> yeah, so as it turns out, you know, he talks about the, the writing of it, which, you know, was kind of on the spot. Here, I'll make it up, and, and they kind of transpose it. But then what he wanted him to do was to hit this high note. And, uh, you know, I thought it was funny when he told McCartney, you know, that's really officially out of the range of this trumpet. McCartney was encouraging. You can do it. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we've we've heard from other people. Uh, uh, You know, particularly you you look at stories of like uh, uh, Steve Jobs from uh, the other Apple. You know, people (laughs) would say, "Oh, well, I can't do this, or I don't know how to do this, or this can't be done." It's like you'll figure it out. (laughs) It could be like, well, I know there. Here's this note, but you should see what George Martin just did with. John's <laughs> Strawberry Field song. <laughs> you can do it. Then while they're playing back the tape, there, there's some sounds that they can't quite identify. Ridiculous. Beautiful. And that's an example there at the end, though. Yeah. I mean, anyone else would go, oh, that's feedback. Yeah. Let's get rid of it. And it, yeah. well, might be feedback, I don't remember. Yeah. But with us, it's going, no, it sounds good. Yeah. You know, it's great. It's fine, you know. So we'd leave accidents yeah. a lot of the time. Everything I've read, it was a pretty complex recording. I think it's like eight pianos, and, uh, various speeds, piccolos, there's a horn. The piano in Penny Lane isn't just one piano. On the record, it's four. And we can follow the trail of them all by unpicking the track layer by layer, like an archaeological dig in the original masters. It's a fantastic demonstration of how the Beatles put together their songs using the studio as part of the creative process.
the piano engine room in place, more surprises were to come in the song's instrumentation. Back when Pepper was having its 50th anniversary, there was, it was a special on the BBC on, on the recording, and then, you know, the, they go through Penny Lane, and, and he, they dissect which piano was which, and it's like, and they put them all together, and it sounds like one, and then there's a, an interview clip with Paul. It's like, I thought it was one. <laughs> One thing we, we do learn through this is Paul has managed to mix up reality and his own memory and stories that people have told him into sort of one thing. He, he, what he says is not necessarily accurate. Right. Then we get Lady Madonna. He doesn't mention the Bad Penny Blues. I thought he would have found a, a place to bring that in because he fully admits that that's where the piano came from. Right. But he also mentioned that, you know, he consciously altered his voice to, to sing Lady Madonna, you know, that, that Madonna. Well, and he uh, does that. I mean, you know, like 1985, you know, that's the same sort of voice he's doing. A blues man's voice almost. Right. And that leads into a Band on the Run. Yes, indeed. And he tells the stories that we know. <laughs> yes. Going to Lagos. He talks about getting mugged and losing all the demos and then therefore kind of going, we're going to make a record. It, we, you know, we've lost band members and we've lost the tapes. So we're still going to make a record. What was the, uh, I have never heard all the talking in the intro. I'll have to listen to that again, see what that is. But then, you know, while they're playing the isolated tracks, Danny's voice comes up and it's like, oh, that's just so gorgeous, and Paul doesn't mention it. <laughs> right. Oh, come on. You, you can give Danny a little bit of credit here, Paul. <laughs> right. You can say I'm drumming on this. <laughs> well, he which he does. Yeah, right. It's also interesting that he refers to it as a rock opera, you know, uh, which I never thought that was I wouldn't, the case. I wouldn't have described it that way, but, but I can see what he's kind of thinking. Yeah, but I just thought it was more like Second Side of Every Road. It's more a, a suite rather than an opera, but, you know, in, in right. Paul's mind. It, it may be a term that he kind of uses to mean his Uncle Albert. I mean, he, I think he's thinking about it in terms of Tommy. Yeah. You know, that would have been the sort of thing that was on his mind. Oh, oh well, well, they're doing this and we can do that. Yeah. Uh, and then the Fila Kuti bit, and that was really pretty cool. Yes. I mean, the, the footage was great, and he talks about, you know, going to see him. And Paul playing the riff right there on, on the piano for, for Rick Rubin. I still remember the riff. <laughs> so cool. You know what that riff is? I mean, it, it may be just coincidence, but it's um, Mama Miss America from McCartney. Huh.
I didn't notice that. Yeah. I'll listen to that again. Which, of course, was earlier than this particular trip. But that could just be total coincidence. But the the tones are the same. The chords are the same. And the, the tone of it, the bass line is a little different. Him saying that that I wept when he hit that groove, calling that one of the greatest music moments of my life. It's like, wow. Yeah, it really affected him. Clearly, I mean, he really, really liked it. Uh, and, I, and I think at one point uh, the story went around that Stanley Kuti had come to him saying, you've come to steal our, our thing. And he had to reassure him that that was not the case. Um, so at the time I was left with, oh, they had bad feelings. You know, Fela Kuti? Yeah. Um, he was there. And when I arrived, first thing I see in the newspaper is, uh, Paul McCartney comes to steal black man's music. I go, oh, God, you know, yeah. see if I haven't got enough problems. So I get his number and I ring him. I said, fella, hello, Paul McCartney here. I hear you've said in the newspaper that I'm coming to steal. I said, I'm not. Yeah, you know, you're coming over stealing Mac. I said, no, I'm not. I said, come over to the studio and I'll play you a couple of the things we're doing. And you'll see. It's nothing like what you're doing, and we're not going to... It's basically all songs I'd written outside of sure. anyway. So he came over with, like, 30 wives. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and a studio full of ganja. Yeah. Man, I mean, he was one wild cat. He used to have a bottle of whiskey in which was marinated a pound of pot. <laughs> and a whiskey. Yeah. Hey! <laughs> But he was, you know, we turned out to be real good friends, and um, he got it. He, he said, no, you're not, you're not doing that. Uh, somehow he went to the show, and, you know, they got together there, and it's like, okay. And that really is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, he liked it. And there's video from the time. A lot of the stuff in here is not for the hardcore fan. This is something that the hardcore fan can just dig their teeth into. Right. Then we move on to, to Waterfalls, which is not one that I would have expected them to include in this special. Yeah, that was kind of a surprise. It's a pretty little song, this, yeah. He said modestly. <laughs> it's a pretty little song. Yeah, yeah, Paul, it really is. <laughs> yeah, I personally like it better than coming up. Well, I like both, but... I mean, it really is pretty, pretty good. It's a, it's a great track. And, yeah. uh, you know, Rick Rubin saying, uh, I had never thought of it that way. Even though after you hear the TLC waterfalls, you have to think, okay, yeah, I can see how they got from, from Paul's to this. And, and they, yeah. they're ripping off a bit much. But, you know, both of those records do sound very contemporary. Yes. Is this one he talks about not really caring for the string sound? Yeah, exactly. You know, he, he says that uh, uh, one of his regrets of the song is that he didn't like the sound of, of the synth strings. Yeah. Well, you know, that in some ways was a really unfortunate period when synthesizers were, were trying to find their way into music. You know, I think Elvis Costello once did an album where he played uh, or they used the DX7 all through the album and he says I can barely go back and listen to the album now because you know that keyboard was really really hot at the time 
was the sound. And so, but it makes it, it sound dated. And I can see that McCartney kind of feels like, well, that's kind of sound that I, I have come not to appreciate. <laughs> then he follows it up with, you know, forge ahead constantly. And that's what he does, you know. Right. If you were to describe Paul's whole life in three words, that's it. Forge ahead constantly. Right. And, you know, he he's such a clever fellow. I mean, he's, he's so inventive that you know, I see people going, why is he still making music? He's, you know, 80 years old. And, and uh, why is he still doing that? That's what he does. That's his right. life. He's so, and he's good at it. <laughs> you know, uh, you may say his voice has changed or or gotten worse or whatever, but you know, he his whole thing has always been work with a, with whatever I've got. I think that's the essence of the whole McCartney, McCartney two, McCartney three series. He he can do it by himself. You know, I think he likes working with people, um, but he always. He's always looking the fireman stuff. I mean, he, he just looks and forges ahead. And that, um, that brings us around to, yeah, you know, he ends at the piano playing a new song. You know, life can be hard. We, we don't know whether that's something that he's got in the can or whether that's something for the, the Broadway show or whether that's something for, there's supposed to be a dozen songs that he's, uh, doing for the the animated thing on netflix the the world of squirrel children's show so but he does play a new song i also thought it was kind of a nice moment because he uh he, he plays this tune and and rick is leaning over the piano listening and he goes that's incredible that's really good and the look on mccartney's face i mean he's paul mccartney <laughs> but the 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 fact that this guy goes, that's great. That's incredible. Clearly there was joy. The beauty of it is when I hear it, it sounds like, oh, this is a song that's always been around. We, we you know, know like that, it, in, in a good way, but not in a way that I've actually heard it before, but in a like, oh yeah, this is like one of those songs that feels like it's in the air. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's what I've sort of done all my life. That's yeah. what I'm still doing. Yeah. Just trying to discover just a little thing that sounds nice. I th- someone said Mozart once said, I write the notes that like each other. And I like that. Yeah. I like that. Sounds good to me. (laughs) He still gets that buzz. And then on the way out, before the closing credits, we get a little bit of the Paul playing Blackbird from the the Apple film. Although it's very closely cropped, so all you see is Paul. You you don't see Francie sitting sitting next to him. Oh, man. Cut her out again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's that's part two. Part two is better than part one. Uh, it it has a lot of really good stuff in it, and it's starting to pick up speed. Yes, full revelation. I've seen all six. So well, we all have. I, I'm pretty sure because uh, because they released them all at once, and I think that was a smart move. Although yeah. you know they could have released it in two parts, but going six weeks is, would not have been the way to release this. Right, it doesn't need to be Loki. Maybe not necessarily so much after the first part, but after the second and then after the third, it's like, oh, I got to see the rest of this right now. Yeah, no, I never was, you know, bored. It was always kind of interesting and 
as I said, even the, the setting, the fact that McCartney is not being interviewed per se, they're listening to tapes. They're two musicians who are talking about this stuff. And, uh, it's not an interview situation. So uh, it was worth seeing just for that. Well, and given the way they've cut it, you know, they could do another three hours easily if there's, you know, 15 hours sitting in the can uh, of comparable material. Yeah. Just them going through. I don't think it would, it would get old if they put out another three hours. If they did a second. Although if they, if they cut something together based on the 15 hours that they. Maybe. Yeah. Then they've taken the best stuff, the most interesting stuff and put it into this. I don't think they put, they'd leave something really, really good on the cutting room floor. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how this goes, where, where, and if it goes. Yeah. The word it, right now is that they're not planning on a physical release anytime soon. So, right. You know, so, so what does that mean? That means that, Anything that they might have held aside for a bonus will either be a second series or will will be you know a year eighteen months from now when they do. So it'll be the DVD series with extra footage. Yeah, exactly. But like you say, from 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 on high, the word is that there is are no plans for a physical release this year. So right. Which surprises me a little bit, but then it doesn't surprise me. I mean, this th- this sort of fits in as Paul's in between project. It's like, okay, you know, we know we got bigger and bigger and better stuff coming, but you know, remember me, I'm still out here. He did the same thing with anthology. Uh, you know, the summer before anthology, he put out uh, Ubu Jubu, his radio series. Right. So you know, I view this in in kind of the same fashion. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to be interested in the, the coming stuff. So if this takes a while to be released, that's fine. I mean, I've, oh yeah. Got, well, I mean, we've, you know, again, we've got all things just pass, and we're we're packed. We're packed back. through the end of the year. With <laughs> yes, there will almost certainly be an archive release, if not at the end of this year, in the spring of next, probably. Uh, Back to the Egg in London Town. Hmm. So, all right, great. Well, I guess that we've said everything that could possibly be said. On parts one and two. Yes, and we'll uh, move to other parts. Parts three and four next week, uh, Kiddo Tool will be joining us. Uh, she uh, she of the, I've got to keep up with Darren Murphy. The, but between <laughs> the two of them, they, they have been on the same number of shows through the years. I see. Or, 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 or there will be the same number of shows once she does this one with us. I was going to say, so, so Darren was ahead by one. And now, Darren was ahead by one, and now she's catching up again. I see. Okay. I don't know if, if you know Kit other than just on the internet. She She's written a couple books. She is the uh, the internet editor for a Beatle fan. She's we, we refer to her as the queen of all Beatles media. All right. Well, so, I, I have not met her, so I look forward to that. Yeah, she's, she's great. We have a lot of fun every time that she's with us. Uh, and uh, I will close out by saying that uh, I was just with... Uh, Sam Wiles on his uh, Paul or Nothing podcast, we were talking about Paul's videos from Broad Street through to uh, Once Upon a Long Ago. 
So we we had we had a good couple hours talking about the interesting time Paul was having with his '80s videos. That was back when he was forging ahead constantly. <laughs> well, and having to edit himself around uh, Dan Aykroyd and uh, Chevy Chase <laughs> because in this they had to re-edit the Spies Like Us video because British television would not let. Even though Aykroyd and Chase were were in our musicians, they uh, they would not let anyone who did not play on the record mime in the video. Huh. That that was the rule. So they they actually had to re-edit the video to uh, put them to show them not pl- not <laughs> pretending to play instruments. I didn't know that rule was still going at that point. That explains the pirate song by George Harrison. Yep. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll be back next week as we move on to parts three and four of McCartney 321. Excellent. We'll see you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Did get uh, lost the album, but uh, sort of deep fans yeah. know that one yes. and often write to me about it. And yeah. I, but I think I slightly regret it that the strings on it are just little weedy synth little things. I think that might be part of what makes it modern, though. Maybe. Well, do you know? It's like you know, I don't know. It's the con- hey, it's the- you know, the thing is, I can have regrets. They don't have to be right. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I think all of us, we go, oh, we should have done that. Yeah. Somebody else say, no, you don't need to. That, that's fine. But I, I so, don't see you as someone as having a lot of regrets looking back on music that you made. Not really, no. Forge ahead yeah. constantly. And, um, oh, that's what I love. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Music, life. There's, there's always that next little song that you can be thinking about, all right? I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.